。看来我们只能靠自己了。地球错失了最后一次机会。这座宫殿不是庇护所。Hi everyone, and welcome to Middle Earth, your source for insight into China's cultural industry. Listen on to those who are making a living by creating and distributing art or content onto the world's second biggest cultural market. I'm your host Aladdin Farré, founder of China Compass Production. And apart from this podcast, if you need to find a location scouting for your next film in China or bring your YouTube channel to Chinese platform, you should reach out. Usually, on this podcast, we talk about today's cultural project in China. You know, the typical TV series, movies, video game, and so on. But today, I wanted to take a deep dive about Chinese antiques. Thanks to its rich history, China has plenty of artifacts that are being sold and exposed in museums, and there is a market for it—a huge one. With me today, three guests, all here in Beijing: Isaac Duffy,、uh, but you go as Easy. Hi, yeah, I'm Easy. I'm from the UK, but I've spent most of my adult life in Beijing, and I'm an art collector specializing in、uh, Tang and Song ceramics. And、uh, due to COVID policies in Beijing, Easy could not join us in the studio, unfortunately. <laughs> and、uh, next to me in the studio, Sun Jiahui. Hello. Hi, hello, everyone. I'm Jiahui. I used to work for the work of Chinese magazine as an editor and writer. I have written some articles about the relics, so it's a great honor to be invited to take part in this show. So, yeah, nice to meet you. And next to you, Zhang Bo. Hello. 呃，大家好，那个我是张波。呃、uh, ，Hello, I'm Zhang Bo. I'm an architect and an interior designer. But after years of work in my field, I've got another job and interest, which is collecting antiques. I have found a lot of fun in both collecting antiques and work in architecture. 多的乐趣。So we'll first talk about how China sees those antiques, as they are, I think, really important for the general mindset, the market of antique itself, and maybe talk about some of its dark corner. For example, according to an article that Jiahui wrote for the World of Chinese a couple of years ago, Raider of the Lost Arks, you stated that there are currently 1.6 million Chinese antiquities stored in over 200 museums across 47 countries, but that number represents only a tenth of items keeps in private collection globally, and almost all acquired from the black market. And then we'll finish with the usual quiz. First, I think we should start with the importance of relics、uh, of all those antiques in the eyes of the general public in China.、Uh, I'm a former historian, and actually,、uh, my mom does a, a little bit of antique dealing. And I was wondering if it's me or in China, like there is a lot of emotion attached to those relics. Yeah, yeah. I remember you talked with me about an article I've written. It's about a return of an important relics、uh, who. Which came from the Europe to China. So I will start with that story. It's a、uh, like relic with a long history and was taken away from China in the war time, especially like in the Opium Wars, and was taken away from the old Summer Palace by the Anglo and the French forces. So when the relic came back to China, like. One hundred years later, so it's a big deal to Chinese people because behind the relic itself is a long history, and there are a lot of stories behind the relics. So I think, yeah, that's true. It's emotionally a big deal. It's it like we Chin we Chinese people have some strong emotions. 
about these relics, and we care about the relics because of the history behind it, not just、uh, the objects themselves. I think this question may be divided into two parts. There are two kinds of people. The first is those who know and are collecting antiques. In fact, most people, including me, are more concerned about the significance of its price. Of course, I like the history attached to it, but I think the historical value is just an attachment of its price. Of Of course, it shouldn't be so. But the current situation is that the feeling of its pieces' price are greater than the feeling of the history. The second part is about the Chinese people from the past. For example, I have read many books from the time of the Song Dynasty. Their feelings about collecting antiques are actually opposite to those of the Chinese people today. Because from what I read in the old works, I think they actually know more about the meaning of collection than the modern Chinese people do now. So they may just be the opposite of the Chinese people's perception of antiques. So, Easy, what do you think about this all、uh, uh, Chinese emotion baggage attached to all those relics?、Uh, you and me, representant of the imperialistic army, who ransack the Summer Palace. I think in this context, obviously, we have to agree that first of all, it was a very different time, and this would not happen in the twenty-first century because it was absolutely not acceptable in terms of repatriation. Of artifacts,、um, this is a very, very difficult and、uh, complex area, and it's nice to see that a lot have been returned、uh, to China, particularly ones of national importance. Such,、um, I think, someone mentioned the、uh, the zodiac heads from from Yemenyuan, and and there's a great number more.、Um, but you know, it's also nice to see that a good number of these were brought back by. Private individuals; they were not、um, bought back by the government or or、um, large companies. A lot of these were bought by private individuals and donated to museums. So, I think that in itself is a testament to the value that a lot of these items hold to the Chinese people. Now, I was wondering, can we talk、uh, also to keep giving some kind of background? Like, what are the laws regarding、uh, antiques in China? So, for example, from what I know now, every antique older than 100 years old cannot leave the country. I think I was wondering of that kind of things, or like, can anyone start digging up the the ground, you know, to pick up like a piece of a gold medal back from the Tang Dynasty or something like this? Well, yeah, I mean, the laws regarding antiques in China、um, are, are another area that's extremely complicated, and the first thing that I think. One has to understand about this is a lot of these laws are interpreted differently in different parts of China and on different levels. If you look at, for example, the export issue, there are obviously grey areas on this. I think recently,、um, three or four years ago, the laws were changed to anything over fifty years old could not be report,、uh, exported. However, there are means to apply for export permits for certain items. In terms of、uh, domestic trade, this is also something where a huge number of laws exist, but、um, are interpreted very differently. So,、um, with regards to digging items up, that is、um, absolutely uh, illegal um, unless you were a professional archaeologist with permissions. And all of this,、um, which is a very complicated process, 
um, you are not encouraged to do this as a private individual. And if you do happen to stumble on something of historic importance, officially one should hand that into a museum. Now, of course, um, you know, a lot of farmers and ordinary people might be churning up tens of thousands of tiny shards of porcelain or coins um, every day. Um, simply by accident. And, you know, there's been a huge amount of uh, development in China in the past few decades, which means that a lot of things have been dug up. So um, what that means is this law is interpreted liberally, I should say. If something is dug up of particular importance, um, such as ancient bronze, stone, it will absolutely go to a museum. Um, However, most items of porcelain are generally seen as okay to trade, Um, the same as coins and all of these more regular items, because um, frankly, it would fill all of the museums in the world. So um, one of the things I would say that you have to understand here is uh, the reality um, is often somewhat different to the law. And you have to, I mean, the best um, sort of approach I would give to anyone who's considering buying or selling art in China, if they're in a particular region, they should go speak to the Cultural Relics Bureau and find out um, what their actual policies are and how they are actually implemented. Because, um, you know, this is an evolving, um, it's an evolving process. And for example, ancient bronze and stone is something on which there's been a bit of a crackdown on in the past um, three, four, five years. Um, Previously, it was traded somewhat openly, um, and now it is something which most cultural relics bureaus um, really uh, seek to, to protect and preserve and do not want people trading or collecting privately. Like there is a law on the cultural relic protection, and it's very complicated, and I remember there are like... 80 articles in total. So it's complicated and difficult to understand every item of the law. And I remember a very interesting item says, like, if you know a relic is a state-owned one or it belongs to a public, uh, public is a public uh, relic collecting unit or it came from a grim grave robbery, you can definitely not trade it. But someone like interpreted as if I don't know where it comes from and I don't know it belongs to the state or not, I can trade it. So yeah, it depends how we understand these laws and what the situation it is. So yeah, I agree with easy. Yeah, it's true. Like you you'd better ask before you like spend money. So it's risky. In fact, there are a large number of cultural relics spread among the people. In this large number, most of them are fake, newly made and counterfeit. Moreover, it is a fact that a large number of antiques lie in a realm between legality and illegality. When the government policies are relatively loose, the transactions are very huge. However, if the government's policies are tight, the transaction volume will surely shrink immediately. As a matter of fact, the government has no ability to judge which one is legal and which one is not. First of all, the origin of a cultural relic is unknown, because no matter where it comes from, like grave robbers or whatever illegal activities, once you lose its contact, 
with the source of the peace, its origin will become obscure. In fact, that kind of situation is happening for large quantities of antiques even today. Second, the government, including cultural relics experts, cannot judge whether an antique is true or fake. That's why there's a huge grey area. In this area, I think it is a bit like the rules in marriage law. The government can stipulate the obligations and responsibilities of couples, right? However, it has no way to stipulate whether the couples can quarrel or not, how many children they have, when the children can get up or go to bed. The same is true of a grey area in cultural relics law, and the government is unable to maintain these things. I feel it's really interesting to see that this is this is this seems to be like a massive industry per se, like a cultural industry, even though we're not talking about TV and movie, but it's I, it's still really important for the mindset here and for the culture. And yet at the same time, it seems to be on some kind of slightly shaky ground. So now I'm wondering, uh, Zhangbo, because you've been in this industry for over a decade. So I'm wondering like, if you can describe like how things were back in the day and how they are today in terms of trading in terms of who are the buyers, who are the sellers, how to buy stuff on the internet or on the market and stuff like that. In the past 16 years, my personal observation on this market is the following. I think China's middle class is shrinking, its money turnover is getting slow, the surplus money in the hands of the middle class is shrinking, or at least the available money is shrinking. Why can I say that? Because. 16 years ago, when I was a rookie, I could only buy some cheap things. Of course, I bought them from the market. These cheap, middle and low-end things were actually very easy to sell in the market. As long as the quality was okay, it could be sold. However, one thing that has slowly changed in the past 16 years is that such things have been becoming more and more difficult to sell. What we are pursuing now is good, high-end and exquisite things. They are now easy to sell. My conclusion is that people who buy antiques are in fact middle-class or rich people who have spare money. Grassroot people have no way to buy antiques anymore. The money available to the middle class is gradually decreasing. Therefore, it is increasingly difficult to sell these middle and low-end goods. In fact, this shows that this class may be gradually shrinking. Okay, so I have a question like the buyers. Is that young people or kind of middle-aged or even old people like interested in buying antiques? Middle-aged guy. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go over the 16 years that I've been through. 16 years ago, in fact, there were many young and middle-aged people who bought these things. Now more mature collectors. More elderly collectors are also buying. But now, I think the group of middle-aged and young people collecting antiques are shrinking. I think it is in the process of overall shrinking. An old collector who has been collecting for a long time is in fact very picky about his collection. He has already seen and owned a lot of ordinary things and doesn't want to buy more of them. However, one of the reasons why it is difficult to sell entry price and intermediate antiques 
is that I think in addition to the factor of the middle class, the group of young collectors is also shrinking. From what I see, this phenomenon does not occur in China alone. I think it is a worldwide phenomenon. That is to say, the collection of ancient works of art has no successor. There are fewer and fewer young collectors, so this industry can't renew itself. Young people are mainly concentrated in the field of modern and contemporary art and rarely in the field of antiques collection. Yet, I have observed that this phenomenon in Chinese mainland is still much better than that in other places. After all, I think that the number of young collectors in this place is still much higher than that in other places such as Taiwan, Hong Kong, which I know, Japan, the United States and Europe. In addition, maybe the Chinese people's interest in history is still a bit stronger than other nations. Izzy, do you have any follow-up that you would like to say regarding uh, yeah, you know, the, the state of the market? I know you have not been doing it for fi- 16 years, but you've been doing it consequently for the last few years. So I'm wondering if you could give us like a kind of a description of what the market of antique look like in China. Uh, sure, I would be happy to. Since this is a very big area, I'm just going to make one small comment, which is um, I do think as a young person, the market um, has changed in the past few years as a result of changing demographics of collectors. Um, and I find that generally younger people and, you know, there are still very few younger collectors, but I'm sure that um, will increase as time goes on. Uh, as they get older, right? Um, yes, to a certain extent. But I do find that now uh, younger people are taking more of an interest um, because of a sort of contemporary interest they have um, in ancient pieces um, for for their sort of contemporary appeals. And, you know, I think um, part of the the way Chinese um, contemporary artists moved has influenced this. The example I'd use is, you know, Ai Weiwei very famously broke a, a hand dynasty vase and he painted some with Coca-Cola symbols. Now, these things don't really have any um, material value. If you were trying to buy one in China, um, now it would be maybe uh, less than $100 for something like this, not a lot. Um, but the prices of these are going up because I find that a lot of young people are starting to see ancient pieces and more simplistic pieces um, uh, have a lot of contemporary beauty. And they look lovely in a modern home where they find um, the traditionally collected things, um, Ming, Qing, porcelain, um, you know, blue and white, um, less appealing. Um, now, this is a bit of a niche, but I do foresee that this market is um, is going to get bigger because it's also um, got a large following in um, in Japan and Korea and, and other parts of Asia. How did Internet change the market? Like, for example, uh, the both of you antique specialists in the panel, like to find client and to sell, the, do you, is it like a person-to-person things or do you do a lot of sales on the internet without meeting anyone? Yeah, well, I mean, the internet has obviously had a huge uh, impact on this industry and especially um, with the impact of of COVID, of the pandemic, um, that has made that even more pronounced. So although um, there is still a huge person-to-person industry 
in China where people actually go to to private collections or dealers and look at pieces themselves. Um, the role that that apps such as WeChat um, play, or or you know, there's a, a huge number of apps uh, where people sell items. Most famous is built into WeChat. Um, the role that these play should not be underestimated. Now, all you simply have to do is take a photograph of an item and you can post it on your moments or WeChat or forward it to a few friends who you might know would be interested in buying. And that gives you much more easy access than having a shop. So actually, a lot of dealers I know have actually almost closed their shops entirely or visit them very, uh, very rarely now, because most of their business they do uh, via their personal networks. And a lot of that is done online. Okay, I think this question of internet and the trust between people uh, brings up the question of fakes. I think that that would be like the typical thing that I think foreign tourists, they would come to China, buy antique, and then the first thing they think is like, did I get robbed actually? Did I just bought like a fake? So I'm wondering like in the antique economy, like in all those cells and internet included, what are like the the size of the fakes uh, going around? I can understand the reason behind your question. You mean how to judge the authenticity by looking at a picture of antique, right? For an ordinary person, there is a 95% probability of buying a fake one. <laughs> this is actually a very difficult question to answer. How to judge whether it is true or not. It might be useless to talk in generalities. So I'll tell you how I bought real antiques. <laughs> I want to start with a specific story and then slowly expand. I think it would be easier this way. For example, if you want to buy a real antique and avoid the fake ones, you must first find a person who is not a crook. You can't judge the authenticity of this antique. To find out if this person is real, your social experience may help you. Is this person good or not? What about his knowledge, his accomplishment, etc.? Use your own criteria to judge whether this person is a crook or not. What kind of people sell what kind of things? If this person is not a good one, his things are probably fake. So first judge people, then judge things. Start with one person, and then slowly spread to several people. I think that's a point very well made. The only thing I would add is that um, when you're starting out, it's very good to find people um, who can teach you and to study with. But the most important thing is to um, make sure that, yes, this person is, is real and they are honest, but also to make sure that this person actually understands what they're talking about because, you know, I've met a lot of dealers in China that, you know, have some old pieces, have some new pieces, and some of them are honest and will say what is what. But I've also met some people who will say a new piece is old and that is sometimes not even because they're lying, it's sometimes because they do not understand what they are selling. So I think it's very important um to find someone you can study with. And also the other thing I would add 
is um, not to cast too wide a net, to focus on one specific area. So if you're going for ceramics, choose a certain certain dynasty, certain color, and then work out from there. Do not start um, too big too quickly, or it, it will be very difficult to, to understand anything. I was wondering, uh, that was really interesting, the point you made that because there were so many construction work all over China that basically the, the earth was unearthed and then I guess like people could keep digging stuff all around the country. But then I'm wondering like what are kind of the areas where people would find uh, most antique and old objects? Um, I mean, li literally everywhere from my experience. Um, I mean, you know, all the way from, from Kashgar to, to Shanghai. Um, but obviously there's a very different variety of what people were digging up. And, you know, another thing I would add that back in, in um, you know, the opening up um, and, and, you know, the, the reform period, there was a lot of development going on. So a lot of these pieces were accidentally um, unearthed and then, you know, a great number of them made their way into um, into private collections and, and onto the market. Um, these are obviously predominantly in cities and places where there have been development and, you know, what they're finding varies by place to place. In Henan, they find a lot of ancient bronze. In, in Fujian and Jiangxi, they'll find a lot of Song porcelain. But of course, in addition to this, um, there were, uh, there's also a lot of people that do um, uh, purposefully go and, and dig things up illegally, which um, the government has fortunately um, been very, very strong in putting a stop to. Um, and although that this still goes on, um, they do take it very seriously. Um, and a lot of these people face face jail time for, for destruction or, or theft of relics. Simple question, but all those people collecting antiques, then what do they do with it? They just put it in their living room and then they just show off to their friends during dinner? For most people, I think there are actually two factors. The first one is that antiques do have historical and cultural information, so you are interested in them. Of course, antiques also have a price, but if there is no such attribute, I think antiques will lose their appeal. I think this question of money is absolutely natural, since most people have demands. This financial attribute, I think it cannot be separated from antiques from every historical period. If there is demand, then there will be sellers. I think this is why most people like antiques. Yet it is not only for that reason. In fact, after buying antiques, many old collectors choose to donate or sell them at auction in the end. I think uh, he basically summed up everything I would have said myself. Um, the only thing I would say is, you know, obviously there are a lot of different tiers of collectors, um, people who spend, you know, a, a few bucks on very small pieces And then people who are spending hundreds of thousands or, or millions on serious collections. So, um, you know, in all these different tiers, people have different motivations. Um, for some people, it might align with their, um, their, their personal interests and beliefs. You know, uh, tea wares are a very popular, uh, collector's item for people that drink tea and are very interested in tea culture. Um, and then, you know, people collect, uh, everything from, um, from items from the Cultural Revolution all the way back to, to ancient items. Um, so some are doing it, 
um, as a financial investment. But I think um, to everyone, there is an extent of personal interest. And, you know, that obviously comes down to the individual. Yeah, I remember because I went to your house, Zhongbo, uh, and I remember you were telling me that some items from the 1950s uh, could actually be higher in the price than maybe some object from the Tang Dynasty. I mean, I'm kind of making this up as I go. But my point is that it seems that the price of object really follows the kind of interest of people, like how close they are to it. In fact, this is a question of value. What produces value? Only when people have a demand can those antiques have value. Therefore, the value of antiques actually reflects the demand and desire of Chinese people for a certain kind of antiques. For example, the value of some primitive Neolithic colored pottery are very low. For Chinese people, a piece from 4,000 years ago can be bought for a few hundred yuan, which is very cheap because people don't recognize the value. They think it's made of mud and not beautiful. But things from the Ming and Qing dynasties, even those from the 1950s and 1960s, are very expensive because they are beautifully made. Most people do not buy mainly on the basis of historical value and cultural relics value, but on the basis of beauty. The so-called issue of how old is this piece does not occupy the most important position in their minds. The Chinese value of antiques is what the material is, whether it's beautiful or not, and how much effort was made to make it. Collectors use this kind of thing as their judgment. Therefore, the value of antiques actually reflects the Chinese people's aesthetic orientation. And and to finish, like I wanted, I wanted to talk uh, also about the the dark areas. We already mentioned it at the beginning of the recording. But the fact is that it seems that the majority of pieces are coming from the ground and are kind of in a really gray area. But I was wondering, Jiahui, can you talk about the issues of tomb raiding? Tomb raiding has a long history in China. Especially in ancient China, because the law isn't as strict as today's. But yeah, it's true. Like most, many of the relics are actually came from these stolen tombs. But I think today it's very risky to do so. So I don't think there are a lot of like tomb thieves today, and maybe there are just uh, accidentally find a tomb and unearth it and find something in it. That's the most common phenomenon, I think. But people are kind of curious about this tomb raiding industry, and there are some like novels, some TV shows, movies about this topic. So that's just the people's curiosity. People are interested in these stories, but I'm not. I don't think like Chinese people are really interested like to dig out a tomb to find some antiques in it. So that's my my personal opinion. Yeah. Because after all, it is a podcast about culture industry, mainly on movie and TV. And <laughs> I have to admit that I was really surprised to see that there is this whole genre of yeah guys Indiana Jones type, but like it's all about like digging tombs and picking up the treasure. And I'm kind of wondering, like,、uh, how does it feel for you guys to listen this kind of shows? Because at the end of the day, it's just people desecrating tomb and stealing object. I think the pursuit of mystery is a feeling everyone has, 
we all have a thirst for the unknown, mysterious and strange things, which I think, after all, is a common feature of mankind. Secondly, I think many people think tomb robbing can make them rich overnight. This kind of stimulation is also great for everyone. With these two factors, it is natural for the public to be interested in this thing. Jiahui, could you share some numbers to have a rough idea of the how important is it as a phenomenon? I remember there is a saying like, in China, all out of 10 tombs, nine have been emptied. So that's the existing situation. Like, Throughout the ancient history, many tombs have been digged out already. So, yeah, some archaeologists insist like this is a huge like damage to the relics, and it's definitely nothing about archaeology. It's just uh, like steal things from the tombs. So, it is a terrible phenomenon, and we should not beautify it. So that's the principle I think we should share here. Well, thank you guys for this.、Uh, I think we get a clear view about like the industry and、um, the challenge that are into this field.、And、now we're going to end up、uh, the the show with my favorite part, the quiz, where we'll see who is the most knowledgeable among our guests. The rules are simple. I will ask you a few questions. If you know the answer, you first buzz in with your name. Each correct answer will give you a point, and the person with the most points will win the quiz. But for this time, we have one non-native English speaker and one non-native Sinophone. Then I will. Ask you the question through the WeChat group, and the winner of the quiz. So usually we would give away、uh, one magazine of the world of Chinese, but today this is going to be a little bit different. So、uh, for a joke,、uh, a few weeks ago with Hati Liu, who is the editor in chief at the World of Chinese, we were invited by ITE,、uh, you know the TV TV platform, and they gave us like this wonderful、uh, mystery box. You have like a. Archaeological object that you can dig up, and I will invite everyone to listen to episode fifty when we talk about Pop Mart,、uh, when we talk about the whole business of mystery box. I will send the question in the WeChat group as the poor Easy is stuck at home in his hutong, unable to come us due to Beijing policies. And the first question is being sent. Wow! And yet I will still do the question orally for the audience. Question one: In the Xianran Cave, was found the oldest form of pottery in China, dated back to around twenty thousand year BC. Can you tell me in which Chinese province is it located? Okay, you guys can just try. You know, it's not like there is two hundred province in China. Zhang Bo is in Guangxi, ma? No, it's not in Guangxi. Okay. You guys are in Hubei. Okay, he deserves a second chance. Is that Hubei? It's not Hubei as well. I I would say Henan. Neither. I might have read about this once, but I'm not sure. It, is it in Jiangxi? Yes, it is in Jiangxi. Is it really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Okay, well, congratulations. You gain your first point. One point for easy. Okay, the second question goes onto the WeChat group. Which Chinese emperor is、uh, considered as the biggest art collector? Easy. Well, I, I assume that's Qianlong.、Uh, yes, indeed, it is Qianlong. But I guess he had it easy because he was one of the last powerful emperor. So obviously, that was easier for him to collect a lot of arts instead of someone back from two thousand years ago. Okay, I think we have、uh, a winner because it's only three questions. But maybe we will have a runner-up. So question three: We're going to play Guess the Number. 
the infamous Yao Yuzhong, who was nicknamed the Grandmaster of Tomb Robbery, raided tombs during a prolific 30 years career. Yao learned looting technique from his father, used feng shui and astrology to estimate the likely location of ancient tombs. In 2015, he was arrested, along a network of 225 criminals spread across seven Chinese provinces. The police recovered several artifacts dating all the way back to the Neolithic period. Can you tell us how much was the loot worth? I have no idea. Jiahui, <laughs> can you start and give one number in, uh, in English guess, and Chinese? Yeah, an embarrassing fact is I wrote this article, but I cannot remember the number exactly. <laughs> well, can you start giving like a rough guess? Uh, maybe I will say like one billion. I'll be honest, I've not heard of this person, possibly read about him once, but I would guess I would guess then like Iga Yi, which is a hundred million. I think. Well, Easy, you actually won again the point because it's actually 500 million. We. Oui. Well, congratulations, Easy. You are not here in the studio with us to receive your prize, but uh, yeah. Okay, lovely. <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna come your way. <laughs> On that note, uh, we'll wrap up the show. So thank you guys for coming and a big thanks to Matthew Hu for some of the guest recommendation. And glad, dear listeners, to have you until the end of the interview. I guess you like the show, and if you do, you can actually help us to grow by recommending us to your friends, but even more important, you can recommend us topics or guests that have insight on China culture industry. It's not always easy to find people willing to talk, and a recommendation would go a long way. Access is always really important. Let me remind you that Middle Earth is part of TWC, the World of Chinese Podcast Network. If you want to know more behind the headlines, go to theworldofchinese.com and order your latest copy. Also, if you are impressed by this show guest and need to find an interviewee for your next documentary piece or use a researcher in China, you can give us a call. Today's episode was produced and edited by Aladin Faré. Production assistant Ren Jiayin. Music by Sean Calvo. And distributed by the World of Chinese Podcast Network. Hope to see you next time and stay safe. Bye-bye. Okay, now question two. Igong yo sangu wenti. And a backup question just in case. Uh, sorry. Did you send that? I no, don't wait, 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 wait. Oh, come on, me. You're gonna win. Don't worry. No need to be so. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like our listeners are still doing their dishes. Yeah, all very committed to their workout. Yeah, for sure. So, since you're still here, if you want to learn more about Chinese society, culture, history, and language, you should go to theworldofchinese.com or find us on WeChat and you'll find an amazing array of award-winning, in-depth, original reporting on China and amazing videos and podcasts too. All right. Well, until the next issue then.